0: Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 5 today, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, don't own one. There's one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use a Bible, there's a table of contents at the front that'll let you know where, the, where 1 John is. Chapters are going to be the big numbers. Verses are going to be the smaller numbers. And so you're able to, to read along, to follow along with us as we make our way from verse 1 through verse 12 of 1 John chapter 5. You know, I was thinking this week <clears throat> about uh, kind of whose, whose word do I accept and whose word do I reject? And for whatever reason, my, my brother-in-law came to mind, and I just want to go on record as saying, man, I love my brother-in-law. He and I get along really, really well. But I, I've known over uh, a decade plus of marriage and, and five years prior to that dating Valerie, so I've known Brian a long time, that if he recommends a movie, I'm going to hate it. I mean, that's just it. And so he'll call and be like, I saw this great movie. I watched this amazing TV show. And the weird thing is, as he's describing it, I think, I think I would like this. I think I would really enjoy this. And I watch it, and I think, that is nothing like what he described. This is the worst thing I've ever watched. And the whole time I'm watching it, I just think, maybe there's something redemptive that's going to come in an hour and a half, that's going to come in two hours. Well, you know, a decade plus of receiving this advice from him, I don't even start. In some ways, maybe it would be a better idea when he says, I saw this great movie. and be like, let me just stop you there. What have you seen you hated? What have you seen you hated? And so if he were to give me something that he disliked, maybe that would resonate with me. But but man, I don't like the movies he likes. I don't like the TV shows he likes. and, And I really don't like the food he likes either. And so even though we are good friends, I like almost nothing that he likes. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she knows... My palate, she knows what I like to eat. She knows if she watches a movie, she's like, oh, he's going to like this. Now, she might not always like it, but she's able to pick really accurately what I'm going to like and what I'm going to dislike. Now, one of the things we recognize is that Brian's testimony to me of, of what's good and what's bad has no effect on my relationship with him. Over time, I've come to understand he has really, really poor taste, he has, he has just really, really poor taste. I pray for him often uh, for other reasons. Maybe I should throw that in. But he has really, really poor taste. And my wife, I would say she has great taste. I mean, she married me. She knows what I like. And <laughs> But, you know, the, their testimony, their preferences and recognizing these things that resonate with me doesn't make my relationship with them change one way or another. It's not that I am inclined to believe them more based upon my relationship with them. But what we see in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is on the basis of the testimony, on the basis of the witnesses given, there is something set of us for how we respond. In essence, John is making the argument that if you believe the witnesses, if you believe the testimony that is given, it will result in profound change in you and if it doesn't result in profound change in you that this is an indication not that it didn't meet your preferences not that you didn't think it was a good idea but that you have absolutely rejected it and so let's walk through this together and i just want you to see this looking back and starting back immediately prior to this section john was referring to our love for others back in 420 he said if anyone says i love god hates his brother he's a liar in essence john told us this if, if I'm communicating that I love God, but anytime it comes to me being around Caleb, I'm just like, oh man, I can't stand that guy. He is the worst. I just can't stand him. Caleb has some need, and, and I have the ability to meet that need, and I'm like, mm, mm, no, uh-uh. You don't know Caleb the way I know Caleb. What scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, that if that is true, if that's the testimony of my heart, then what scripture tells of me is that I am a liar. I'm a liar. I am self-deceived because I see a brother or sister in need. I have the ability to meet it in line with chapter 3 and verse 17, and I don't. Man, I just don't care. And so we come into this passage knowing that something about our love should be visited upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now as he opens up verse one of this, he's moved past love and he says, now something about what we think, something about what we believe should have impact on our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says all the believing ones, all the ones who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been born of God. And so I have news for you today. If, if you would say that you believe that Jesus Christ came, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died, for your sins in your place, and that he rose again on the third day, if you would say, and this is the testimony of your heart, and that you are believing upon him for salvation, that you are believing upon him, that that he has removed the guilt, the stain of sin from you, and you're trusting in Jesus and not trusting in yourself, then scripture would say to you, you have been born again. Now, Jesus has a much longer conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and I would encourage you to go read that, about what it means to be born again. But simply put, we recognize that you and I were lost, separated from God because of sin. Because of the sin in our lives and because of all of humanity's sin, we were lost, we were separated from God because of sin. But it is this basis of union with God which causes us to be born again. And so we are not causing ourselves to be born again. We are not causing ourselves to be made alive. But God's radical supernatural intervention in our lives has made us to be born again. Amen? And and one of the characteristics, the markers of being born again is believing that Jesus is the Christ. And he camps on that. He says, you believe this, you've been born again. Now look. He says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so we think about it in terms of this. Most of us, if you're to think about somebody you don't like, you don't struggle with that, right? So you can think of somebody you don't like. Think about that person. Think about that person. Think about somebody you don't like. Don't point at them, Sebastian. But think about this person you don't like. Now this idea is thinking about the person you don't like, you can think, man, I could get over this. I could get over this hump. They have radical morning breath that seems to stay with them all day long. I can get over that. I just won't stand so close. Don't stand so close to me, right? And so we can can move past that. We can think about other things. I don't like this, I don't like that opinion. And so we can do that on the one or two persons can alter my life. I can change my circumstances. I don't have to be involved or invested in that person's life. Now what John does is he comes in and he blows that thing wide open. He says whoever has been born again is a person worthy and deserving of your love. Everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been made born of him. There's an indiscriminate love that should reside within the heart of a Christian. Do you see that? This is indiscriminate love that should reside inside our heart. That is desiring to find itself being met out in application on those that need our love. Whosoever, anyone that is a true and follower believer in faith in Jesus Christ is deserving of your love, according to this. Why? Because they too were a lost sinner who's been made alive by Jesus Christ. They too were lost and astray, and God has radically worked in them to make them alive. They are no more deserving than you of the redemption given them in Jesus. You guys are both poor and hungry beggars at the door of grace, and God threw those doors open and lavished grace upon you. This is a person worthy of your love. He calls us to be indiscriminate in our extension of love. He has this odd way of proving it or letting us prove it for ourselves in verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Now, wait a minute. Wouldn't you think he was going to make the argument, by this we know that we love God? But he doesn't. And why does he do this? Well, look what he writes. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. In essence, I I just got to tell you this. I got to be honest. I am very, very good at fooling myself. I am very, very good at fooling myself. I've not yet developed the ability to fool my wife. I've not yet developed the ability to fool my mom. But I am very, very good at fooling myself. I'm very good at, at just engaging in, in things and being like, oh yeah, 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 I've got that. Oh, he's in, oh yeah, yeah, no, no, I took care of that. I, and, and so just kind of meeting needs and just kind of quieting things and keeping things calm. And I, man, I'm willing to bet that most of us are good at that. We are good at satisfying kind of our surface-level observation of need and our, our surface-level observation of what people desperately have to have in their lives. We're good at that. So this is what John says. By this we know when we love the children of God. When we love God. You see, it's time spent With God. It's this passionate pursuit of the heart of God that enables us to love these children. So think about it this way Jesse and Anna have some need in their life, and I am aware of it, and I'm hard against it. I have no desire to meet the need in their life because it's going to cost something of me. Okay? Now I'm over here and I'm spending time with God, and I'm in prayer with God, and perhaps I'm fasting, I'm reading His Word, I'm gathered with my other brothers and sisters in Christ. God is at work in my heart. I have no ability to long withstand the need in their lives and maintain fellowship with God. This is what's going to happen. I see the need they've got over here in their lives, whatever it is. It, maybe they have a financial need they're preparing to adopt. And so I know this financial need. My heart is hard against it. I don't care what their needs are. I'm over here with God, and I'm, my prayer life is running like this. Got to have all these amazing things going for me. I need you to move in these ways. I need you to do this. Oh yeah, could you handle that couple over there? And I just go on and on and on about these things. The more I passionately pursue God, the more I give my heart to him, the less he will let me remain indifferent towards this other couple. Do you see that? Now the reason The reason so many of us are able to remain indifferent towards the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ is because we simply do not love God. Let me explain something to you. We're very thankful of the gift God gave us in Jesus, but we simply don't love him. We're thankful that we don't have to face death and hell. But when it comes to loving God, we really want to set limitations on that because of what it might cost us financially, our pride, emotionally. Perhaps in the midst of this love relationship with God, he would call you to do something you're not prepared to do. Can I just go ahead and ruin the surprise for you? If you're passionately pursuing God, he is going to ask you to do something you are not prepared to do. There is no surprise. But it's in the midst of passionately pursuing him and loving him that he is making your heart desire his things. He's making your heart line up with his heart. And in the midst of making your heart line up with his heart, he's redirecting you. He's bringing you back over here to radical engagement and love of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is what he says. We need to love him. Next he says we need to obey his commandments. One of the ways we show God we love him is by obeying his commandments, by doing those things he calls us to do, by being true to what it is to be a follower and believer in faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse three, he says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. In essence, if you claim to love God, more, maybe you're more than thankful, and you claim to love God, but you disregard everything God calls you to do, then you cannot rightly consider yourself to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. You're somebody who is, is thankful for what he has done, but you're not somebody who truly loves him. Because to love him is to find yourself longing to obey him. This is the way we model God's love. And look what he says next. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirty. 30. He says, my, my uh, yoke is easy, my burdens are light. man, how many of us, when we read that, we say, okay, next verse, and we just kind of keep going because in some sense we read this and we say, Jesus, your, your burden doesn't seem so light. It doesn't seem so easy. It doesn't seem like something I can really uh, do very easily on my own. We recognize that we are absolutely incapable of doing it on our own. Let's think in some sense of those things that God is calling us to in Jesus, You can follow me there, or you can just remain here. In Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says these words, speaking of all those who would seek to be his disciples, all those who would seek to follow Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus calls us to radical obedience. Jesus in essence is saying, will you follow me and will you follow me to the point of death? And will your following of me be such that there are no boundaries, that there are no restrictions that you put upon the course of following me? Jesus continuing in in Luke 9, he was walking along the road and someone said to him, and starting in verse 57, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus, look, man, I got nothing but time. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' response is this. It's shocking. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have deaths, and the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In essence, it is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not a pleasure cruise. To another, Jesus actually instigates, he says, follow me. And the man says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus responds, "Let leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Lastly, another says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me bid farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, most of us Our idea of following the commandment of Jesus really kind of resides in this idea of the golden rule or some various articulation of it found in Matthew 7, 12 and elsewhere. The idea of, man, I just need to treat others how I want to be treated. I just need to treat others how I want to be treated. But the actual application of this is incredibly difficult. Most of us desire to be loved. We desire to have our needs met. Following Jesus in some sense is is looking at our needs and saying no to our needs and yes to the needs of others. It's incredibly difficult in some sense to apply the golden rule, but look at the way Jesus intensifies it in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five and verse 43 and 44, Jesus says this, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But this I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. In some sense, it seems that Jesus is allowing our relationship with him to rest on our engagement of those who would seek to do us harm. But yet he comes into this and he says, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Can I tell you this? If you seek to do these things in your own power, they are going to be awful. If you seek to do these things in your own power, they are going to be terrible, miserable, awful, and poorly executed. If I hate Peter, I can't stand him, don't, want, don't look at me. If I don't want to look at him, don't want him looking at me, and, and, and I read these words of Jesus and I say, fine, I'm gonna go love this brother over here. One, I'm going to make him awkward because I'm shouting at him, right? I'm going to make him feel awkward because I'm shouting at him. But two, I will not long be able to maintain any right relationship with him because I'm doing it only in my own strength. The Christian following Jesus correctly only ever follows Jesus in the power of his spirit. The Christian following Jesus correctly only ever does it in the power of his spirit. Time spent with God changes our hearts, makes our hearts long for the things that his heart longs for. Time spent with God and the power of the spirit lets us walk in these things and say to them, they are not burdensome. This is why you have a lost person come into your life. And they observe you and they watch you and they say, how do you put up with so much stuff? How do you tolerate all these things? How do you do these things? Your testimony is never, well, over many years, this is what I've decided to do. I just count to 10 backwards in Portuguese until I'm calm again. Right? That's ridiculous. What we say to them, our testimony always to them is only ever in the strength of the Spirit. This is how we do this. This is how we do this. In essence, it's this testimony that we are pathologically incapable of doing these things, and we are mandated to rest in the strength of the Spirit. Amen? Come on now. This is why so many of you are so poor at this. I'm giving you instruction, and I say, say amen, you're like, grumble, grumble, grumble. This means I gotta hate awful people. That's what you wish I said. This means you have to love awful people. Amen? goodness, goodness, it is difficult, it is difficult, can I tell you the degree to which we believe this, and prayerfully go before God and say, this is difficult, I don't want to do it, I know sure as heck I don't have the strength to do it, and so, God, this is my prayer before you, I'm going to humbly submit myself to you. I'm gonna pray that you change my heart to make me desire these things. And this is what I'm also gonna ask for you, that you give me the strength in your spirit to walk out this truth. Outside of those things, there's no hope for us. Outside of those things, we are no different than someone merely seeking to be kind. Our kindness flows from our relationship with God through the power of his Holy Spirit, not our degree to which we are able to be affable, likable, or lovable. It says, everyone who's born of God has overcome the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, we have an overcoming faith because of our relationship with God. We have an overcoming faith according to verse five because it is met in union with our belief and faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look what he goes on to say. He has this radical thing that he ties our faith to the testimony, to the witness of Jesus' ministry and the Holy Spirit at work within inside of us. He ties our faith to the ministry that is testimony of these things. Verse six, he says, this is he who came by the water and the blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. In essence, he's telling us that if you look at Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, and you are to bookend it. You're to put a mark on the beginning of it, and you're to put another mark on the end of it. The beginning of Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism. So John the Baptist is out there, and he's baptizing men and women for repentance. Jesus comes along, and we read in Matthew 3 that he is baptized to fulfill all righteousness, in essence, giving us a picture of what you and I are to do as well. And so in baptism, we join, we follow in the pattern set for Jesus, set by Jesus for us. And so he comes by the water, he comes declaring his kingdom, it's his baptism. He comes by the blood, and we recognize in his crucifixion, his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so he says, this is he who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. In essence, our lives are transformed by an observation of his ministry, And are impacted by a focus on the beginning and end of what Jesus came to accomplish. His baptism pointing to his crucifixion and his crucifixion pointing to our redemption. Look what he says. Last part of verse 6, he says, The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. John, in his gospel, gives us a number of different pointers. He points out a number of different ways that the Spirit is working and communicating. And in John chapter 15, in John chapter 15 and verse 26, this is what he writes. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus bears witness to himself, right? He's got his baptism, he's got his crucifixion, he's got everything in between. Jesus is bearing witness to himself, and he's preparing the disciples for what happens when Jesus leaves the earth. And he says, it's okay, I'm going to send the helper, the Spirit's going to come along, and he is going to impart wisdom to you. So he's declaring to them. We see also the witness, the testimony of the Spirit in John 16 and verse 8. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The role of the Spirit in each and every one of our lives prior to us coming to faith in Jesus Christ was convicting us concerning sin. You see, the Spirit wasn't moving and working in our lives and in our circumstances so that we might look at Christianity and say, oh, I think this is better. I think this is better. They generally on the main seem to be a happier people. They generally on the main seem to live longer. Their wives are prettier. I think I'm going to go this route. I think I'm going to become a Christian based upon some loose argument the Holy Spirit had with us. No. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to a person who doesn't have faith and belief in Jesus Christ is convicting them concerning sin and righteousness. It leads them to an understanding that sin resides in their heart. And that outside the righteousness of Jesus, the forgiveness afforded them in his death, there is nothing they can do. They might be generally recognized as being kind, good, and wonderful people. And I'm certain this is true. But outside the work of Jesus and their repentance from their sins and their turning to him, they are lost for eternity. This is what he says. The Spirit's work in their heart is convicting them concerning sin and righteousness. He goes on in verse 13, and he says, this is what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit of truth comes. He'll guide you into all truth. The Spirit working in the heart of the Christian is teaching us to apply his word to our hearts, and it is teaching us to recognize false from truth. It's teaching us to recognize right from wrong, and it's calling us to walk in that pursuit. It's the ministry of the Spirit, and the Spirit is truth. It tells us in verse 7 and 8 that these three agree that the Spirit at work inside of us, that the baptism of Jesus in His crucifixion, they all agree with one another. So by this you can know That if you feel led, feel impressed to do something that you can't reconcile within the life of Jesus or his scriptures, know that what is at work inside of you is not the Holy Spirit, sin of God, but is something else. Perhaps that sausage was especially spicy and it is leading you astray. Take Pepto, don't make any big decisions. I said these three agree. These three agree, he goes on, he says, if we receive the testimony of the men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony that God has given us. He has borne concerning his son. In essence, John in verse nine isn't making, the test, isn't making the argument that God's testimony is greater because God is greater, but we recognize this to be true. We recognize the testimony, according to verse nine, of God is greater because it concerns his son, and those things that concern his son concern those who follow his son, Amen? It says his testimony is greater. Now look at this. Verses 10 through 12 are incredibly difficult for us to apply. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you have believed on him for salvation, you rest in his righteousness and not your own. Then his spirit resides in you. This is what he tells us. Something we've looked at for the last several weeks is why not very many of us hear from God, why not many of us feel this sense of the Spirit-filled life. And simply put, it's not because His Spirit does not reside within you, it's because you don't depend upon His Spirit. You depend upon your intellect. You depend upon your income. You depend upon your friends. You depend upon predictability. You like to control everything. A life lived in full submission to the Spirit of God, is not a life firmly within the grip of your hand. This is what it takes from us. It's us laying all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our finances. We say, okay, I'll do that. And he comes to your kids, he's saying it's laying all of your kids' hopes, all of your kids' dreams, all of your kids' finances. Laying the health of everyone you know, laying that all on the table, Say, God, I trust you. You can have that. Where would you lead me? But in reality, most of us, many of us, we find ourselves looking at it saying, is there an easier way to follow you? Because I've got to be really honest, like I've got a good thing going over here and, and this is okay and, and I, the reason I don't pray about it is, is not because I don't trust you and that you'll come in and you'll ruin everything, but it's just because it's okay and these people over here really need you more. So I'm just, I'm just going to stay over here and I'm just going to continue to be Okay. Many of us have become convinced that being okay is fine. We have an okay relationship with God. We have a satisfactory relationship with God. There is no such thing as an okay or a satisfactory relationship with God. He calls each and every one of us to submit all that we are to him and to each and every day, in every moment, be fully dependent upon him. There is no easier version of this. There is no beginner role or place in this. This is what he calls us to. He says his testimony resides in us because his spirit resides in us. Now look at what he says here. Whoever believes his son has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Why? Because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Many things in life, we can agree to disagree. My brother in law calls me. He says, Man, I just had this amazing sushi. You're going to like this. I know he's wrong. Why do I know that? Because there is no kind of sushi I like. (laughs) Fish should be fried, it should have hush puppies as a side, right? It should not be raw, it should never be cold. Thank you. you. All right, we're done. Let's go. Should have closed with that. (laughs) Yuck. But, man, we can can agree to disagree. He calls me. He says, I saw this movie. I'm just thinking, get it over with. This is going to be awful. We can agree to disagree. Like me saying, Brian, man, look, I've known you a long time. And you have never been right about a movie outside of something that just everybody else agrees upon the world over. Like if you were to call and say, "Matt, Braveheart's a really good movie," I'd be like, "Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. This is not something new for you. This is not something new or novel." But if you were to call and be like, "I just went to the movie theater and I saw this movie and it was awesome," I know he's wrong. I don't need to spend seven fifty for my ticket. I don't need to go to Rotten Tomatoes. I don't need to do anything else. I know he's wrong but the degree to which he's wrong doesn't change my relationship with him. The same is not true with God. The same is not true with God. Some of you sitting out there, you believe God is wrong. This is what he says. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. See, back in chapter four, we were the liar. We were those stating to believe that we love God when we didn't believe those around us, and we were the liar. But he gets to the end here, and now we're seeking to make God the liar. There is no middle road to salvation, to faith, to relationship with Jesus Christ. You either believe him and come to faith and rest, and trust in the salvation afforded you, in the sacrificial death of Jesus, or you disbelieve him, and he to you is a liar. And it's all predicated, it all rests upon what you believe, the testimony of God concerning his son Jesus Christ. There's no more palpable way to put this. There's no way to salt this and make this Tastes better to be more well received. The message, simply put, is this. All those outside of faith and belief in Jesus Christ call God a liar. They say he is wrong. And that outside of that changing, their ultimate destiny and destination is forever to be separated by, from God by spending an eternity in hell. This is difficult. And I've got friends. I've got family who don't believe. And anytime you read this, it never engenders, it never creates in us a sense of overwhelming pride. And yes, I'm in. Oh, I'm so overjoyed. Like, I'm a part of this. I'm not calling God a liar. Each and every time we read this, it should absolutely break our hearts. Because there are lost men and women who don't believe. And the same Holy Spirit that worked in your heart to convict you concerning sin and righteousness yearns for them to come to that same truth. Yearns for them to come to that same truth. And so we pray for them, We love them well and we continue to model what it is to be a passionate follower and believer in Jesus Christ, knowing this, that his testimony, the testimony that God has given according to verse 11 is eternal life and this is in his son. And whoever has the son has life. Whoever doesn't have the son does not have life. See in Christianity, the one who gives the testimony is God. And God bears witness through the ministry of the Son, through his baptism, through his crucifixion, and God bears testimony. He bears witness through the role of his Holy Spirit in the writing of Scripture and in its application to our hearts. And the degree to which we believe and receive his testimony can radically change our lives. And if we believe, we'll forever radically change our destination. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank thank you that it is the testimony that you have shared concerning your son in which we might have eternal life. God, you don't look for us to be good. You don't look for us to be perfect. You call us to be redeemed, to believe in faith in Jesus Christ. So, God, this morning, I want to pray for the believer that you would lead them to walk in the reality of that. They have received your grace, your spirit is at work inside them. You are calling them to faithfulness. And when they stumble, when they fall, when they mess up, they are not chastised, but they are bidden to continue to walk, to continue to trust, to try again, and they are walking in grace received. Father, I pray that they would seek to love you and to obey your commandments and to love those around them as somebody who's captivated by your love and who is submitted to your spirit. Father, too, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. For whatever reason, for whatever excuse they have in their minds and in their hearts and reservations. Spirit, would you convict them concerning sin and righteousness? God, would you woo them with your love? God, would you equip those of us in this room that are close to them to walk in strength, to walk in grace, to walk in your love? You call us each and every one to repent, Father. And I pray that you would give your, morning, give your grace this morning to those who need to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.